This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 108, continuing the history of six-day races, running as far as you can in six days. Never on Sundays. Well, almost never. This episode will tell the story of the third Astley Belt race competed in New York City, attended by tens of thousands of spectators, which included the most violent riot ever experienced in ultra running. But first, I wanted to announce that I have started to publish bonus episodes for those who have signed up to help contribute to this podcast. Is my way of thanking you. The first exclusive episode is now available on Patreon.com and covers the first major six-day race held in California in 1879. A fascinating tale. You can find it and also sign up for bonus content at ultrarunninghistory.com member. That's ultrarunninghistory.com member. We'll redirect you to the Patreon page. Now to the story. By the end of 1878, at least 41 six-day races had been held in America and Great Britain since P.T. Barnum started it all with the first race in 1875. Daniel O'Leary of Chicago was still the undefeated world champion with 10 six-day race wins. He was a very wealthy man, winning nearly $1 million in today's value during 1878. All the racing was taking a toll on O'Leary, and he had frequent thoughts about retiring. However, he still had obligations as the holder of the Astley Belt and the title of Champion of the World. If he could defend the Astley Belt one more time, three wins in a row, by rule, he could keep the belt forever. A third Astley Belt race was in the early planning to be held sometime during the summer of 1879. In January, O'Leary went to Arkansas to rest at the famous Hot Springs, with its six bathhouses and 24 hotels. Little did he know that the third Astley Belt race would be one of the most impactful spectator events in New York City's 19th century history, witnessed by more than 80,000 people. It impacted thousands of workers' productivity for a week and even distracted brokers on Wall Street away from their ticker tapes. The major New York City newspapers included more than a full page of details every day that revealed the most comprehensive details ever of a 19th century six-day race. Because of its historic importance and all the great details, this race will be presented in two episodes. Sir John Astley wanted to make sure a Brit would next win the Astley belt. After putting on an English championship in late October 1878, he identified the best British candidate that he thought could contend with O'Leary and bring the Astley belt back to England. His man was Charles Rowell, who had recently placed third in Astley's English championship six-day race with 470 miles. Charles Rowell, aged 26, was born in Chesterton, Cambridge, England, and was fond of sports athletics in his childhood. He had gained some fame as a rower at Cambridge and was regarded as one of Britain's top emerging athletes. He started his running career in 1872, winning some races. In 1874, he won a 19-mile race in 1 hour and 57 minutes and later covered 32 miles in 4 hours. 
He was no doubt very fast. When Edward Payson Weston first came to England in 1876, Rowell raced against him in a 275-mile track race in the Agricultural Hall in London. He mostly played the role of a pacer and completed 175 miles to Weston's 275 miles. Lastly charged Rowell to get himself fit and promised to pay the expenses for him to travel to America for the third Astley Belt race. After a few weeks of training, Astley invited Raoul to his estate and observed his running abilities. I was satisfied that he was good enough to send over to try and bring back the champion belt to England. Prior to leaving England, it was rumored that he had covered a world record 539 miles in a private six-day trial, but Raoul would not confirm or deny it. John Ennis of Chicago was the first runner to properly apply to challenge for the Astley Belt. Charles Harriman of Boston was the next, followed by Raoul. By the end of January 1879, O'Leary accepted the challenges and started planning for a June race. But within a few days, John Astley, the founder of the Astley Belt series, decided that the next Astley Belt challenge would need to be held in March 1879 at New York City in Gilmore's Garden, soon to be renamed Madison Square Garden. The near-term race date came as a huge surprise to the Americans O'Leary, Harriman, and Ennis. What the? So soon? Clearly, Astley believed that Raoul was ready to be sent to America and didn't want to wait until June. O'Leary's camp stated that Astley wanted to hurry up the match because he believed O'Leary was out of shape after the match with Campana a month earlier that really trashed his feet and overall health. O'Leary, who was still at the hot springs in Arkansas, thought the decision was unfair and arbitrary, but he knew he couldn't fight it. With the surprising announcement, no additional American runners were even given time to enter. Astley was a shrewd, determined character. O'Leary gave in and said, I am ready to walk at two days' notice. In mid-February, Raoul boarded the steamship Parthia for New York City with a send-off by Astley, who made sure the captain of the ship gave him great accommodations. He arrived on February 28, 1879, and O'Leary kindly met him at the dock to welcome him to America. Raoul was pleased that O'Leary greeted him. Raoul walked to Gilmore's Garden in downtown New York City to look at the venue of the race and then walked downtown to the St. James Hotel to have a runner's meeting with O'Leary, Harriman, and Ennis. Ennis had recently arrived from Chicago after a terrible road trip was delayed en route for two days because of heavy snow. They negotiated the division of the resulting gate money of the event and set firmly the start date for the race to be on March 10, 1879. Good feelings were felt. Ennis joked that Harriman, who was over six feet tall, was too tall to walk against the other three shorter men and suggested that he should be cut down to regulation length. <laughs> John Ennis, age 36, was a carpenter from Chicago. He was born in Langford, Ireland, immigrated to America when young, and served in the Civil War for Illinois. He had been competing in walking since 1868. 
He had beaten O'Leary in a handicapped race early in October 1875, walking 90 miles before O'Leary could reach 100 miles. He also was a very talented endurance ice skater. In 1876, he skated for 150 miles in 18 hours, 43 minutes. Ennis was a veteran of several six-day races, but he usually came up short due to stomach problems. Many in Chicago had turned against him. Is it not about time that this man should end his nonsensical talk? He has made more failures than any known pedestrian in this country. His pre-race bio included... John Innes of Chicago, a remarkable but unlucky pedestrian who on several occasions, with victory almost in his grasp, had been forced to leave the track through sickness. In 1879, Ennis finally started to taste success. He won two six-day races in Buffalo, New York, with his best at 422 miles. In late 1878, he went to England and raced against Raoul and others in the English Astley Belt race, where he finished in fifth with 410 miles. Charles Harriman, age 25, was a shoemaker originally from Maine, but living in Haverhill, Massachusetts. He began his running career in 1868 in short sprinting races. His ultra-running experience was recent but impressive, breaking the existing walking 100-mile world record with a time of 18 hours 48 minutes. With no six-day experience, he entered the next Astley Belt race and was accepted. Harriman had trained hard for the race. His pre-race bio included... Charles A. Harriman, the dark horse of the lot. Though a novice in six-day contests, has a remarkable record as a 24- and 36-hour walker. A week before the race, Raoul and Ennis trained together in Central Park. Harriman walked on the city streets for several miles and spent a little bit too much time flirting with the beautiful wife of the St. James Hotel steward, who he would run away with in the coming months, causing a big scandal. <gasps> O'Leary took it easy, making no predictions, and went to Gilmore's garden to watch Raoul run. New York was curious about the Englishman. Raoul is the smallest man of the four candidates and now weighs about 140 pounds in costume. His style of progression is a trot, yet he moves along with little apparent exertion. Raoul said, I'm not a walker. I know how to run, but I am a poor walker. At Gilmer's Garden, the eight-foot-wide track, eight laps to a mile, was improved to eliminate the clouds of dust that had hindered the earlier O'Leary-Campana race. It was composed of compacted sawdust on clay and rolled for hours. Careful attention was paid to make sure the spectators had good accommodations. A 12-foot-wide platform was constructed outside of the track, with a railing for spectators to view the runners closely. The space for scores and the members of the press was ample and well protected from unwarranted intrusion by a high picket fence. Police officers would be stationed to prevent spectators to interrupt the competition. A huge blackboard was placed in the center of the building for every mile to be promptly posted. A box near the Madison Avenue entrance was designated to be the telegraph office and wires were run to the Western Union building. Messages would be sent to England directly from the track. Fires from 17 furnaces would warm the building. Huts or cottages were provided for each man and their crews. 
They were 10 by 11 feet, and each was furnished with gas stoves, comfortable beds, and plenty of cooking utensils. The third Astley Belt race held on March 10, 1879, was billed as the greatest pedestrian match that has ever been contested in this country. It had the most bizarre start in the history of ultra-running. Three hours before the 1 a.m. start, hundreds of interested spectators lined up five deep for a block long on Madison Avenue, anxious to buy tickets. The ticket sellers worked furiously, and hundreds of people pressed into the building without paying. Such a scene has not been witnessed previously at a walking match. When the doors opened, there was a rush by the eager throng. As thousands of people were pouring into Gilmer's garden, the contestants arrived at midnight, greeted by 4,000 people, and shut themselves in their little huts away from the confusion to prepare. With an hour to go, the crowd was surging back and forth, and there was still a mass of people outside wanting to get in. The police did their best to hold off the rush through the door. The Astley belt was put on display at the judges' stand. The runners came out and rules were read to them. Meanwhile, the great crowd was as noisy and unruly as possible, and the brass band in attendance could hardly drown the noise made by the excited bettors. A few minutes before the start at 1 a.m., with a building full of about 10,000 people, the police closed the outer doors, greatly disappointing those who were shut out on the street. Outside, this caused a howl of disappointment and rage. Let us in! Hey, open the door! The four contestants for the belt lined up at the start line. Thousands wanted to watch the start and stood on tables and chairs and even on one another's shoulders. William B. Curtis, who founded the Athletic Clubs of New York and Chicago, was the starter and shouted the word, Go! O'Leary led the group in a fast walk, but before the lap was complete, Raoul broke out into a trot. O'Leary soon also started into a trot, and soon all four were running, causing a frenzy among the spectators. Then it happened. When the first mile was announced on the blackboard with a time of 9 minutes 25 seconds, the cheering was deafening. Those who were left outside the building heard the roar. The outside crowd turned into an angry mob and rushed for the entrance, overwhelming the two policemen out there, broke down the door of its hinges, and pushed into the building. A dozen policemen inside rushed to meet the mob, including police captain Alexander Clubber Williams, who was known for his brutality. Then occurred one of the liveliest scrimmages seen in New York for a long time. The police used their clubs freely, and the blows fell thick and fast at random. This harsh usage was effectual, and the mob was driven clear of the building. The sound of the heavy blows rained upon the defenseless heads and bodies of the unfortunates, who happened to be in the front ranks, was sickening. The riot that issued was not only because the crowd was denied entry, but also because of the police brutality that injured 70 people and sent them to the hospital. Rocks were thrown at the windows of the building, breaking at least one, and some climbed onto the roof. Police patrol lines were eventually established so that nobody could approach within a block of the garden. 
Those inside the building didn't dare to venture out among the angry thousands. After two hours, the outside crowd finally dispersed. Meanwhile, Raoul continued to run, leading the small pack, completing the first eight miles in one hour ten minutes, with O'Leary about a mile behind. O'Leary walks with his usual grace stride and is loudly applauded. He outruns Raoul whenever he wants to. At times the runners were in a single file trotting. At such times the people in the inner circle would rush from side to side to get a better view of the men. The tramping of their feet sounded like a squadron of cavalry. Both O'Leary and Annis became sick during the morning and needed to take frequent rests, falling behind. Raoul was the first to reach 100 miles in 19 hours 34 minutes, with O'Leary 13 miles behind still plagued by a sour stomach. When they were on the track at the same time, Raoul would tuck in behind O'Leary on the laps and never let O'Leary unlap himself. When O'Leary would break into a trot, Raoul would do the same. At the end of day one, the score was Raoul 110 miles, Harriman 100, Ennis 95, and O'Leary 93. Before the race, O'Leary was the favorite among the betters, but now Raoul was the favorite. At 2 a.m. on day two, O'Leary was the only man on the track and was cheered by about a thousand people who were still there. At 4.40 a.m., Raoul resumed running. The race captured the imagination of New York City. Bulletins were displayed and kept updated out in the streets that attracted crowds of eager news seekers. Such general interest in a match of this kind has never been excited in this or any other city. It is the one theme of town talk, and the throngs that haunt the scene of the contest at all hours of the day and night are unprecedented. The city streets were truly transformed on the blocks that housed newspaper buildings. Groups of patient and persistent onlookers remained for an hour at a time to see the next announcement placed on the board. As each hour approached, streams of people flowed in the direction of the Herald office. What's the news? Who's ahead? Stage drivers would even slow down their carriages as they passed to get a little news. Boys who could not afford a ticket would use jackknives to cut holes through a wall panel of Gilmore's garden, hoping to get a peek at the action inside. Ralph started to be referred to as the little feller and did many long runs. His handlers spent most of their time, quote, concocting mysterious drinks and messes over the small gas stove that occupies one corner of the apartment. They were very secretive and would not answer questions about how Raoul was doing. The crowd would be both inside and outside the track, and of course the only way to get from the inside uh, to the inside from the outside was to walk across the track, which also caused a lot of problems. Uh, the track itself, of course, would just they, the men would use it as a spittoon and just spit their tobacco juice down under the sawdust track, and it, apparently it was pretty gross, the whole thing. The tall Harriman kept up a tremendous pace with a great swinging stride at, quote, the untiring regularity of a machine. He started to receive the nickname Steamboat. Ennis was called... Honest John by his friends. While on the track, he would do a lot of running. The band was having a wonderful time, sometimes playing tunes that would annoy O'Leary. 
Spectators would beat time with their feet and whistle or hum in unison. Everybody was good-natured and cheery. A solid buzz kept coming up over the hall. Waiters in spotless white aprons would flit around here and there, handing foaming beer mugs to dainty, elegantly clad ladies in reserve boxes. The great overhanging balcony was alive with hearty, smoking, noisy men. Bookmen canvassed the crowd with their little red books taking bets. An enormous bar counter, 400 feet long, took up the space under the gallery. It was the equivalent of 20 to 30 bars, each with a bartender. Men five to ten deep pushed, swearing, smoked, hustled and bustled and shouted for their favorite beverage. They drank beer by the hundred kegs, whiskey by the barrel and gin by the gallon. Money flowed like beer. Everyone drank pretty much all the time. Meanwhile, everything on the track was business. Ennis looked the freshest. Harriman looked worn out, and it was rumored that Raoul was getting out of order with a calf strain. It seemed clear that O'Leary was not fully recovered from his last six-day walk two months earlier. He was said to look stale, not walking with any of his old vim, holding his piston rods almost down to his knees. Harriman and Ennis encouraged him along. The crowd kept yelling, Keep it up, Dan! As midnight approached, a gang of gatecrashers used a beam of wood as a battering ram to break down a door to get into the building. Police eventually rounded them up, arrested them, took them out of the building, beat them, and then let them go. At the end of the day, 48 hours, the score was Raoul 197 miles, Harriman 186, Ennis 173, and O'Leary 164. The crowd thinned out during the early hours of day three. A few made beds for themselves from seats. The spectators wore a subdued look, some having their eyes closed in slumber and others yawning at frequent intervals. Dawn arrived and the tired runners were back on the track. In the afternoon, Raoul tried to use his shadowing strategy on Harriman, running close on his heels. Harriman said, It didn't bother me. I heard the Englishman puffing pretty hard, that is all. The crowd didn't like watching these dogging antics from Raoul and yelled at him, There's Harriman's bullpup. Come here, little doggy. <laughs> they encouraged Harriman to get a leash for his new dog. Then to Raoul yelled, Why don't you jump on his shoulders? Get him to tote you around, little boy. But the main story of the day on the track was O'Leary's demise. He reached his 200th mile, but his pace was terribly slow, with, quote, some feeble spurts which were like the efforts of a drowning man to surmount the waves. It was obvious that he had broken down, as he could hardly walk a single yard without swerving back and forth. The crowd gave him silent respect. His attendants wore sad faces. His backer admitted that O'Leary wasn't in good shape for the race, still not recovered from his last one. He still tried to plod along courageously, but during mile 216, he had to stop three times. He was about 35 miles behind Raoul. O'Leary was sealed with violent pains and strange sensations that some believed that a bribed trainer had poisoned him. 
The crowd was hopeful that he would return and in unison gave three cheers for Larry. The doctor determined that his health had declined beyond the ability to continue. O'Leary eventually came out, walked to the judge's stand, and said, Gentlemen, I have finished. He would be giving up the Astley belt. An evening news story was published, and newsboys went to every part of the city, theaters, hotels, squares, and secluded streets, spreading the sad news about the fallen champion. Later, a rumor spread all over the city that O'Leary was dead. Police Captain Clubber Williams confirmed the false report, stating that the champion had died at the Metropolitan Hotel shortly after he had been brought there. Then it was reported that O'Leary had died from being poisoned and that a man had been arrested. The poor hotel clerks were deluged with hundreds of inquiries, but they denied that O'Leary had even been staying there. The city coroner even dropped by the hotel in search of the body. O'Leary was eventually found at St. James Hotel, and the coroner proclaimed, O'Leary never looked better in his life. There is nothing the matter with him. Well, then why did O'Leary leave the track? The coroner replied, Because he was tired and couldn't go any further. O'Leary's doctor was asked why O'Leary broke down so soon. He blamed it on his trip to the hot springs, which softened up his feet and made him sick. Then the atmosphere in this garden was simply rank poison, as bad as arsenic. At every breath, he got a mouthful of dust, smoke, and stale air. O'Leary could not win the Astley belt for the third time in a row, and thus could not claim it permanently. It would have a new steward. At 4 p.m. on day three, the score was Raoul 250 miles, Harriman 238, Ennis 223, and O'Leary, 215, dropped out. Stay tuned for the exciting conclusion of the third Astley Belt in episode 109. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, And most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances.